the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. We are near the middle of our Lenten observance, and at least for the clergy, but I would guess for many of you as well, Holy Week is coming on like a freight train. (laughs) It won't be long. We'll be in the midst of it. And then, of course, that wonderful celebration of Easter, which will follow. But I think now that we are at this almost midpoint in our journey together through Lent, it's a wonderful time for us to consider the passion of Jesus. And in doing that, I want us to consider uh, one of two definitions of passion. Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan co-authored a book entitled The Last Week. And I know a number of you have read that and have found it to, to enrich your experience of Holy Week. In it, they follow Mark's description day by day of Jesus' last week. And in their their writing, they talk about two meanings of passion. The first they raise up is the everyday English use of the word, which they define as any consuming interest, dedicated enthusiasm, or concentrated commitment. We all understand what that is, a passion for something, a passion to do something. And, of course, the second is that that comes out of the understanding from uh, Latin as passion, as suffering. And both of those uh, understandings of passion are played against one another in their book. And it's very interesting as you see that played out in the life of Jesus, especially during that last week. Well, I think in today's gospel... We have a a very good example, perhaps the best example, of that first kind of passion. That passion to do something. The passion for something. And we see that enacted by Jesus as he goes into the temple and drives out the money changers and the cattle. I think it's uh, sometimes hard to imagine how first century Christians would have heard the words of this gospel. Because for many of them, especially if they were new in John's community, they wouldn't have known very much about Jesus. And just imagine the way this gospel starts out. First with that wonderful uh, prologue about the word, the logos, that is made flesh. 
the word that's come among us. And then he goes from that to John the Baptist revealing and saying that this is the Messiah, John recognizing him. And following that is the miracle, that first miracle at the wedding in Cana when water is turned into wine. And that's so rich in symbolism. What that might actually mean for the church, what does that mean, they may have asked. The possibility for another kind of purification, maybe something other than water. What could the wine symbolize? And then after that, uh, that pericope from, the, uh, from Cana, from the wedding at Cana, it goes on to say that Jesus, with his mother Mary, and his disciples and his friends, go off to Capernaum, and there they rest for a couple of days. But then, the next thing that happens is this startling bit from John, where Jesus goes up to Jerusalem because it's Passover, and he comes into the temple, and he finds there the temple turned into a marketplace. The money changers are there, the cattle are there, the doves, all for offering of sacrifice, and there's a lot of commerce going on. Now, one can imagine that Passover was probably much like Christmas to the merchants of Jerusalem. Christmas to us, that is. <laughs> Passover for them was probably that time of the year when they ended up in the black. Because Jerusalem was transformed during Passover. It's estimated that the population of Jerusalem would have gone from 50,000, its normal population, to as much as 180,000 with the celebration of Passover. And then imagine the task and the opportunity of feeding that many pilgrims, of offering lodging to that many people. And of course, for the temple, all of these people had to have sacrificial animals, unblemished, to offer. And there was one other thing that they had to do as well. There was, of course, the temple tax that would be paid. But it could not be paid in Roman coins. It must be paid in temple coinage. So, as with any currency exchange, there's always a little extra that has to be paid that went into the coffers of the temple. So, you can imagine, perhaps, what the scene was as Jesus arrives at the temple. It must have been chaotic. If you've been in any Middle Eastern bazaar, you know what it must have been to have walked into the temple precincts with perhaps uh, one vendor after another with their animals uh, in side by side as tightly packed as possible. And then, of course, the money changers at one end, making sure that the Roman coinage did not foul the temple and that the, uh, that the temple coinage would be available for taxation. It must have been an incredible place to be. And then, into the midst of this, Jesus lashes out. Somebody has said, it's Jesus' temple tantrum. <laughs> and I think it probably was. And we struggle with it when we see Jesus doing this. This is not the centered Jesus that we think about when we think of Jesus. Especially those of you who grew up with that image of Jesus that was in so many classrooms in our Sunday schools. Jesus with almost blonde hair and blue eyes looking off into the distance. It was just all so placid, all so peaceful. This is the image of Jesus going into the temple and lashing out, driving out the livestock, turning over the tables of the money changers, saying, this is my father's house. It shall not be made a marketplace. And one can imagine that the disciples were mortified. 
how could they believe that Jesus could do this and live through the rest of the week? This was at the heart of commerce in Jerusalem, and he was turning it over. I think that it's hard for us to imagine the power that Jesus was displaying in that moment, saying that this is my Father's house, that is to be a place of worship, not a place of commerce. There's a, a biblical scholar by the name of Gerhard von Rath, and he helps us understand also a bit of why Jesus may have done what he did. He says, The prophets express not only the word of the Lord, but also the emotions of God. And Jesus was no exception. When you think of the great prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures, those prophets sometimes looked as though they were out of their minds. They were expressing the emotion of God before the authorities of Jerusalem. And Jesus was doing this as well in that moment, declaring that things could be different. It didn't have to be this way anymore. This morning, we had the privilege of hearing Richard Parker talk about the church and about the opportunity that's before the church to make a difference in the world. And one of the things he talked about was the possibility of taking commerce out of the center and putting something else in the middle. <clears throat> Ironically, or rather uh, coincidentally, uh, about two weeks ago, <clears throat> some of us had the opportunity to hear Brian McLaren. And Brian McLaren, in a recent book uh, that has just been released, talks about much the same thing. That commerce, competition, getting ahead is at the center. It is the myth that is driving the culture. It's the myth that's driving the world. And it has been proven to be false. And we all know it. And Brian McLaren said, the challenge to the church is to offer a myth that will lead to wholeness, that will lead to justice, that will lead to mercy. And I believe that's what Jesus was talking about and what he was doing when he went into the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. Jesus was saying in doing that, that commerce was not at the center of what it was to be a Jew, to be in Jerusalem for Passover. It was not about making ends meet for those who were in the temple for commerce purposes. And what Jesus seemed to be pointing to was something greater. He pointed to himself in doing it. But it was the possibility that the temple was no longer at the center of everything important to a Jew. But rather there was something else. There was another temple. In this case, I think he was pointing to himself and saying, The Christ is among you. The Messiah has come. The need for the sacrifices is over. Now, it's hard, I think, for us to see how that can relate to us. But as I think about the church, I think that if Jesus came now, he would challenge the church as much as he challenged the temple in his day. We as a church, and I'll speak of our own church, the Episcopal Church, it seems that we have spent enormous amounts of money, energy, time, maintaining the institution. We have been engaged in endless debates about the law. We don't speak about it that way, but it's really about the law. 
Who is in and who is out? Nothing much has changed since Jesus went into the temple, it may seem. I think it's possible for us to see something different for the church. I believe it's possible for us to see that what Jesus was saying to the people of his time, he's saying to us now, it's time to stop arguing about the law. It's time to stop having commerce at the center of our lives. It's time for us to see the possibility of the kingdom of God present in our day, in our time. It's possible for us, for each one of us, individually, as a person, as one person, to make it possible for the kingdom to become real in the world in which we live. One person can make a difference. I believe that our church and our nation is at a crossroads. I think for many of us, the reality is that the, the, the myth of commerce being salvation for us is gone. It's not there anymore. Last night, as I was finishing this sermon, I happened to look at MSNBC as my home page on my computer. And I happened to check it. It's one of the ways that I procrastinate in writing my sermons. And I looked at the news to see the latest on the news. And there it was. AIG is going to give out over $160 million in bonuses, retention bonuses. I was so upset, having been thinking about all of this, that I went to the WhiteHouse.gov site and sent an email. I think for many of us, we have seen through the myth, and the myth will not save us. The only thing that can save us is the living God expressed in the living Christ. The one who has come among us and who says the kingdom is present now. God's mercy, God's justice, God's grace can be present with us now. But in order for that to be realized in the world in which you and I live, we must not just believe something. We must do something. The church is called to act. And we're called to stop thinking about just maintaining the institution. The church is called to be a little Christ present in the world around us. And so this Lent, my prayer for you and for me, is that we may get a vision of that passion of Christ. The passion that he had for the kingdom of God to be present in the world in which he lived. And that it can be present in the world in which we live as well. May God give us the passion that we need to make a difference. Amen. Amen.